Howdy, I'm Brian and welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. So last episode we set the backdrop for the book of Esther and gave the 10,000 foot storyline of the book. It's a book that reads like a mix between a reality TV show and a crime drama movie. If you missed episode one, feel free to go back and give it a listen. Also, if you're not reading along with us, then you can navigate to the From Hevel to Eternity Facebook page and check out some of our posts about the book of Esther there. This episode is going to zoom in on a couple of the places in Esther I really want to talk about. If previously we did the 10,000 foot flyby, today we're going deep sea diving in a few passages and words. We'll also explore some word counts and eventually surface at what I feel is the primary theme of Esther. I will try to come up for air sometimes and keep my inner Bible nerd contained, but I make no promises. Let's see what God's word has for us. follow me on Facebook or read along on the blog, you saw that I posted a word association game to go along with this Esther study. The point of that game is to get you thinking through the language of the book. What kinds of words are used and how often? Sometimes processing through this helps me frame the book. Knowing the number of times a specific word shows up doesn't magically give you the overall theme of the book, but sometimes it can clue us into things the biblical author wants us to catch. With that in mind, if you haven't looked over the game and you want to, I recommend pausing this podcast and checking it out on the From Hevel to Eternity blog now, because I'm going to give all the spoilers out in this episode. Note that my word counts are not from one specific translation. They are an average taken from six different translations, specifically the ESV, NASB, King James, CSB, NIV, and NLT. And I did correct for different choices in the English translations. So if one uses the word commandment and the other uses law, then I searched for both to get an accurate count. I also linked back to what the original Hebrew was to kind of make sure I was using the right word counts. The blog has a breakdown of each word by translation. So, what is the tone of the book? What are the words used in the book? Well, it is full of royal, kingly language. Words like king, kingdom, empire, palace, decree, royal crown, scepter, robe, throne, and ring are all over the book. The word king alone shows up an average of 151 times in these 10 chapters. It's also full of rich, lavish language. Words like gifts, gold, wine, garden, feast, and banquet show up a lot. I joked that the start of the book reads like a great Gatsby party, but throughout the entire book you see the royals love their parties, and it's full of so much eating, just feasts after feasts after feasts. It's the height of opulence. Couches lined with gold, drinks served with gold cups, there's a scepter of gold and a crown of gold. The wine is labeled at one point as royal drinking wine. The king and his merry men here live a pinky-out lifestyle. The language also appeals to the senses. Words like eat and drink appeal to our tastes, while there is also this enormous use of visual language. Saw, look, sight, see, eyes. But it's not just that. The things that are seen are often described as pleasing. Pleasing to the king, pleasing to Haman, pleasing to Esther, pleasing to the Jewish people. 
And now to the ironic words that are not present. God, Lord, prayer, priest, and temple combine to appear a grand total of zero times in this book. The word fasting appears four times on average in Esther. And Israelite fasting would have involved prayer and worship of God, but they aren't mentioned specifically. I said at the top that sometimes the words used can clue us into something. And this lack of what you would consider quote-unquote Bible words in the book is definitely something to ponder. But we'll come back to this at the end. There is still this fulfillment language in the book, however. Interestingly enough, there are three places where you might find the phrase, it shall be fulfilled, chapters 5, 7, and 9. Each of those times, it's not people coming to the king to tell him that his request will be fulfilled. Instead, in all three instances, it's actually the Persian king coming to Esther, the Jewish girl, to ask what her request of him is because it shall be fulfilled. In this book, the decrees of the mighty Persian king or the evil antagonist Haman aren't always fulfilled, but the requests of Esther and at the end of the book, the rule of Mordecai is always fulfilled the two Jewish characters who are put in their situations by the providence of God. Don't miss this fulfillment language in the book that really displays the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises and his covenants. Continuing along the nerdy word study path, there are a few verses that had words I had to look up to learn more about. In chapter 2, there are a few statements about the treatment of the women who were running for queen while they were in the women's house, or the harem depending on your translation, that I wanted to find out more for. In chapter 2, verses 3, 9, and 12, there's a word that only gets used three times in the entire Bible, and all three are in this chapter. The Hebrew gets translated to let cosmetics be given. In our English translations, it, get tra it gets translated to cosmetics or purification or beauty treatments, all of which sounds super vague and as a dude who knows nothing about beauty treatments doesn't help me at all. The Hebrew word is tamruk, which is literally a scraping or rubbing. So we're not just talking makeup and a facial here. This is more intense. One of the reasons why they mention it being a month-long process. This is probably repeated cleansing scrubs, oil massages, maybe some sauna treatments. In case my wife listens to this podcast, I feel obligated to mention that this was royalty sponsoring this and that she should not get any ideas or expect month-long spa packages from me anytime soon. I'm pretty sure that's not the message that Esther chapter 2 is trying to give. In chapter 3, we get a verse describing the letter sent out. Verse 3.13 says, Letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. These word choices struck me. Destroy, kill, perish. Your translations might have annihilate in there someplace. The words are really describing these absolute terms. In Hebrew, shamad, or to be exterminated. We also see this word in Leviticus 26, with God telling the Israelites that one of the consequences of worshiping false gods and idols will be for God to destroy, Shemad, 
all of their false temples. Horak, to kill or to slay. This is the word used in Genesis 4 to describe what Cain did to Abel. Abad, to perish. This is how Pharaoh's servants described what was happening to Egypt during the plagues in Exodus chapter 10. Haman wanted to annihilate the Israelite people like the plagues annihilated the Egyptian land. So this was not a light phrase and would have echoed with Old Testament disaster. So be careful not to just breeze over this language in this passage. It's really what sets the tone for how the Israelites react later. Another word is describing the weird incident that happens between Haman and Esther during the second dinner party, while the king was venting in the garden. Chapter 7, verse 8 describes Haman falling on the couch where Esther was laying. Nafal can literally mean falling down, or laying down, or falling asleep, but it is also translated in other areas as attacking, as attacking or toppling someone. This is probably describing a scene where the ambitious, drunk Haman, who was just ratted on by Queen Esther, attempts to get a little physical with her, which is what contributes to the king's strong verbal re rebuke later in the verse, and Haman being put to death. I think some translations convey this better than others, but the king's response seems to say it all. The NIV translates his response in chapter 7, verse 8, as will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Either way, if you, the writing wasn't already on the wall for Haman the Agagite, getting caught attempting shadiness with the queen pretty well seals his fate. This discussion about Haman the Agagite leads to the next question I had while reading. What is an Agagite anyway? Names tend to mean things in the Bible, so when you come across one that also has a people group attached to it, I can almost guarantee that meant something to the original audience. Think Nazarite or Sumerian. Agagite was probably a reference that Haman was a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. The Amalekites show up in Exodus 17 as followers of Amalek, who get in this fight with Joshua and the Israelites. Well, Joshua defeats Amalek, and in Exodus 17, the Lord says to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sky. So Amalek and his followers, against the Israelites and against the God of Israel, get taken down. Amalek and his followers show up again in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you by the way as you came forth out of Egypt, how he met you by the way and struck the hindmost of you, all who were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary, and he didn't fear God. Therefore it shall be, when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around you, in the land which Yahweh your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sky you shall not forget. And the third one I'll mention is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 20, when Saul is boasting of his defeat of King Agag of Amalek to Samuel. Bottom line, being an Agagite would have invoked bad feelings in the listener's ears, even before learning that he was trying to exterminate the Israelites in Persia. According to the text, 
Haman was obviously killed in a very in a very public way. But how did he die? The ESV, NASB, King James, and CSB translations all say that he was hanged from the gallows. What picture does that give us? 21st century Americans might picture the style hanging associated with slavery and the later injustices committed toward African Americans in this country. Modern movie buffs might picture something like the Pirates of the Caribbean and Jack Sparrow being put before the gallows. But let's keep looking, because the NIV and NLT use the different words. They use impaled on a pole. So one group of wording gives us a picture of Haman dangling from a noose, the other a picture of, I don't know, Haman skewered like a kebab or something. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 say that if anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, then you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. That's the CSB translation, by the way. We find some evidence from the Temple Scroll, which was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran Caves, that Deuteronomy 21 could be understood in reference to crucifixion. And actually, in the same paper written by Craig Evans, he notes that the ancient historian Josephus says that Haman was hung upon a cross until he died. And the king later announces by letter, I have crucified the one who devised the plot against the Jews. The Hebrew word that gets translated gallows or pole is eights. It means tree or wood. And we see it in other places come to be translated as pine tree, plank, staff, stalk, or a stick. The Hebrew word that gets translated hanged or impaled here is talah. It means hang, to hang or suspend. It occurs three times in Joseph's dream interpretations in Egypt, all referring to what happened to the chief baker when Pharaoh killed the baker and put his head on a stake. This is Genesis 40, verses 19, 22, and Genesis 41, verse 13. In none of them do I get the sense of a lynching-style hanging. Assyrian law allowed for death by impalement on stakes as a means of execution for criminal offenses, according to Van Gameren. Greek historian Herodotus also presents impalement as a normal style of Persian capital punishment. All of this might just make things as clear as mud, but for sure we now get this picture of a man being suspended from a wooden post, not our western cowboy image of some dude dangling from a rope or some KKK lynching. The exact nature of that suspension is not really relevant. It could have been impalement on a pole or crucifixion style or something else, but it is an interesting rabbit hole, and I think this, this discussion really explains why we see it translated differently in the different translations. I also think the imagery is interesting. Mordecai, this man from an Israelite line who people plotted to put to death on a wooden pole but was saved by the providence of God from death for crimes that weren't really crimes. Haman, from the line of adversaries of the Israelites who had done the plotting, who was put to death on that pole, a just, just punishment for his sins. Enter Jesus, the only completely innocent man in history, an Israelite from the line of David who was sentenced to death on a pole for sins he never committed, but who God the Father actually put to death carrying the sins of the wicked so that we, as Jesus' followers, could find freedom from death. Thank you.
the book of Esther, the Jewish people were saved from annihilation. Haman had planned this event and then cast lots, which is like rolling the die, to determine what day his plan would be executed. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh the Lord. The Hebrew word for casting lots here is pure, and it only occurs in the book of Esther. But a Jewish holiday emerged out of this word. The Jewish holiday of Purim came into being as a result of the events in the book of Esther. According to the Jewish Virtual Library, it is one of the most joyous and fun holidays on the Jewish calendar. It commemorates a time when the Jewish people living in Persia were saved from extermination. 2 Maccabees 1536 actually refers to the festival of Mordecai's day. The holiday was preceded by the fast of Esther in honor of the three days that Esther fasted prior to confronting the king. Ben Gemerin says that although the feast was preceded by fasting, the two days of festivities were characterized by rejoicing, the reading of the book of Esther in the synagogue, and the giving of presents and alms. Also according to the Jewish Virtual Library, there has been much discussion around the saying of the Bab Babylonian teacher Rava that a man is obliged to drink so much wine on Purim that he becomes incapable of knowing whether he is cursing Haman or blessing Mordecai. The more puritanical teachers tried to explain this away, but the imbibing of alcohol was generally encouraged on Purim, and not a few otherwise sober teachers still take Rava's saying literally. So, the book that described a lot of feasts also generated a holiday of feasts and maybe a little overindulgences too. Purim, Mordecai's day. When you read about Mordecai in this book, there are two people that come to mind who have similar experiences, Joseph and Daniel. All were not in their homeland, brought through pretty extreme tests, and then elevated to pretty high esteem positions in foreign governments. I'm just going to look at Mordecai and Joseph, but looking at the parallels between Mordecai and Daniel is also interesting. Both Mordecai and Joseph were set up to be punished punished by ambitious non-Israelites. Both provided their ruler with vital information that God put them in a position to know. Both earned favor with that ruler because of the wisdom God allowed them to have, and both were promoted to positions of second-in-command, Joseph in Egypt, Mordecai in Persia, which were both pretty major empires. While they were in the second-in-command position, they were able to look after the seed of woman and the line that the Messiah would ultimately come from. Joseph was able to save his brothers from the famine, one of whom, Judah, was part of the Messianic line. If Judah died of famine in Canaan, then God's promised son, who would be a blessing to all the nations, wouldn't be able to come from the line of Judah. Mordecai was able to save the Davidic line. If the plot against all the Jews in Esther was successful, then the line of David would have ended. There would be no promised descendant of David who would rule over the New Testament or the New Jerusalem forever. That family tree that we get in Matthew 1 would have stopped around verse 13, never reaching verse 16. Jacob became the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. There are also some direct contrasts between the king of Persia and the Lord God of the Israelites. The king of Persia is seen as an insecure pushover. He 
He's constantly being influenced by others. He goes out of his way to flaunt his riches, his power, and his stature. The Lord, the Israelite God, Yahweh, never wavers in displaying his glory and filling his promises, but he doesn't have to be mentioned or flaunted directly. Mark Dever uses this quote in his book, Promises Made, about the book of Esther. He says, What man intended for ill, God used for good. It's amazing how the storyline replays itself over and over again in the Bible. Joseph's story, which we have already talked about some. Balaam's curse, where Balaam, this Canaanite witch doctor type character, intended to curse the Israelites, but ended up blessing them. A handful of other stories leading up to the biggie, the crucifixion of Jesus. Something that was meant by men to be a final death, but ended up leading to eternal life. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, what is the theme of Esther? God works, even when he is not mentioned or seen, to bring about his glory to preserve his people, and to ensure his promises are fulfilled. He does it through people that aren't always perfect, and in ways that we don't always notice. How all the characters ended up in all of these situations that serve specific purposes leaves the reader to ask, coincidence or not? Without mentioning God, the biblical author prompts the reader to conclude that it's not random luck, but must be a God thing instead. Throughout the New Testament, and specifically throughout the book of Acts, you see a lot that so-and-so just so happened to be in a specific situation that enabled them to do kingdom work. This isn't some weird Wizard of Oz, man behind the curtain pulling strings to see what happens kind of deal. No, this is God knowing the plans he has for us and walking beside us through them, even when we don't notice or recognize it. And this, this is what the real world looks like to us. Stephen Whitmer says the author of Esther is giving us a picture of what life actually feels like. How many times do we not see God or what he's doing in events that take place in our life? Then a week, a year, five years down the road, we look back and we say, I get it now. God, I see your hand all over that. To use a churchy word, we have a hard time seeing God's providence when we're the boots on the ground. His timing and his influence and in events aren't always clear when we feel like we're the ones standing in the fire. It probably wasn't clear to Esther as she was deciding if she should jeopardize her position and potentially her life to save the Jewish people. It probably wasn't clear to Mordecai as he's being set up to receive capital punishment. If the Jewish population is exterminated here, there isn't any Davidic line. There isn't the bottom third of that family tree in Matthew 1 that leads to Jesus. But God the Father orchestrated events to ensure God the Son, from the Messianic line of David, could endure the capital punishment that he didn't deserve. Jesus, who died suspended on his wooden post at Calvary before his resurrection. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have God the Spirit working in your life in ways you might not notice each day. We have a great God, a God who keeps his promises. 
So if you're struggling through something, if you're struggling to see God at work, I want to remind you that one of the promises to his followers is of a time in the future when he will wipe away every tear, when he will abolish death and mourning and crying and pain forever. I hope that if you haven't been reading along with us, that you might open the Bible to start reading through the book of Esther yourself. And I pray this episode and the one before it helps you in that. All Bible verses in this episode were from the World English Bible Translation, unless otherwise noted. The World English Bible is in the public domain. Until next time, I love you all.